Where are we going today, Mr. Peabody? I know something you don't know. Now, we do not want your help. Is that clear? We don't want your help. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're going into the Wayback Machine again. Going to revisit life in the 70s and the 80s when I was growing up. And I know we've taken this trip before, but I keep doing it because the world was so different then. And whether it was different as a little kid, or as a young adult, or as growing up as a 20-something or whatever, the world has changed in fundamental ways, on a day-to-day basis that we don't think about anymore. And one of the things I like to do with Storytime is preserve those memories of the way it used to be. And one of the reasons for that is because I really don't have any idea what it was like for my parents to grow up, what their day-to-day life was. I have no idea what it was like for my grandparents. I mean, I know my grandmother was raised on a farm, but what was that like? I don't know. Did she have to get up and milk the cows? Gather eggs? Till the field? I don't know. What was it like for her to have to cook? To go to the store? Did they have a store? I don't know any of that stuff. And I'm sorry that I don't. As I've said many times, if I had the chance to go back and sit down with my grandma, sit down with my grandpa, have a conversation about what it was like, I would. And that's one of the reasons that, with story time, I tell these stories. I try to preserve these memories. For me, for my kids, for you. Because I know that the everyday life that I lived is foreign. It's like a different planet for a lot of folks living these days. But it was reality. It was the way it was. It was the way millions of people lived. And for me, in some respects, that's just interesting. It's interesting to see the change. But also, it's informative. It gives you information, both so you understand maybe your parents, your grandparents, or other old dudes like me. And it can give you some historical perspective on how much the world has changed. As I said, I've talked about this so many times. But the reason I can keep talking about it is because there's so much that has changed. I've talked about going outside to play as a kid. Back in the 90s and the early 2000s, we were talking about playdates. I would set my kids up with playdates. We didn't used to have playdates. We had going over to Timmy's house. That's what a playdate was called. I would tell mom, yeah, I'm going over to Ray's house. And that was it. There wasn't a call. We didn't have to pull out the calendar. We didn't have to schedule anything. Tuesday after school, oh, let's go over to Timmy's house. Let's go over to Ray's house. Let's go over to Vinny's house. Whoever. That's what we did. That's what a playdate was. It was going outside to play. And when we went over to Timmy's house, or Ray's house, or Vinny's house, or they came over to my house, we did things. We would go out in the woods and build forts. Build forts? Yeah, build forts. What was the fort made out of? Trees, branches, a hunk of old plywood my dad threw over the hill, some old tires my dad threw over the hill. See, we had this hill over the back of our property. It led down to a stream. We didn't throw things away. We didn't throw them in the dumpster. We didn't have a dumpster. Big things like that, an old hunk of plywood, an old tire, dad would just throw it over the hill. We had such an accumulation of stuff back there, it was ridiculous. But it was great stuff for making forts in the woods. You had an old sheet of plywood, a couple of old tree stumps, put some branches under it to brace it up, maybe some leaves to cover it so it was a hidden fort. A couple of old used tires would be great to sit on, that way you didn't have to sit on the ground. Oh yeah, whatever was out there, we used it. Sometimes going out to play would mean catching critters. Yeah, really, catching critters. Frogs, snakes, toads. It always creeped me out. The other kids loved to do it. I didn't like to touch those critters. But Ray across the street, Vinny across the street, oh, they would pick up a toad. They'd pick up a frog. They'd try to chase down a snake. 
We'd be out there in nature. We'd be playing with the things. A frog would hop by. Somebody would try to catch it. If there was a pond up the street, we would see tadpoles swimming in that little pond. Inevitably, somebody would try to catch one of the tadpoles and keep it in their house. Their mom would make them put it back. You didn't keep tadpoles in the house. But that's the kind of stuff we did when we went outside. We actually flew kites. I'm sure you've seen it in the movies or on TV. But we actually built and flew kites outside. Now, when I say built, I mean we assembled the kites that came in the kite package. The generation before us, they actually built their own kites. But if we wanted to fly a kite, we could go down to the general store, go pick up a kite. It was two pieces of bamboo with some paper glued to it, held in place by string. It had one of those little loops of string off the front where you would attach your line, and you had to bow the kite so that it would catch the wind properly. Oh yeah, we learned how to fly kites. They also had box kites. Have you ever seen a box kite? It's literally what it says. It's a rectangle made out of four long pieces of bamboo, maybe three feet long, forming a rectangle with paper on the top and the bottom. And you'd tie your string to it, and if the wind was right, you could get a box kite to fly. And that's what we did to amuse ourselves. But of course there was other things. I mean, daily life didn't just involve going outside to play. And as I got older, I became more aware of what the real world was like. And when I say older, like as a teenager looking for that first job, trying to find a way to earn money, it seemed easier then to find jobs. At least first jobs for teenagers. I mean, sure, you could go walk up and down the street and mow people's lawns, get a couple of bucks for that. But even going to the general store, going to the drugstore, I just seem to remember everybody having a help wanted sign up and then being willing to hire any kid in the neighborhood. Oh yeah, you can sweep up, you can stock boxes in the back. And I seem to recall that the minimum wage was something like three and a quarter. Maybe that's high. It might have been 275. But that was real money back then. Boy, working 10 hours a week at 275 an hour, that was a lot of money. It's when I started getting those paychecks that I really had to take banking seriously, saving money seriously. Oh, my dad was big on saving. Uh, you have to remember, always put 10% of your paycheck aside. That's automatic savings. That's what he said. That's not what I did. Pretty much every dime got spent, but dad was a big advocate on savings. And I remember going to the bank and getting my first bank book. Now, this is before all of the giant banks like Bank of America, Chase, PNC. It's before they took over all of the little banks. Every little town seemed to have its own bank, and ours was no exception. And back in those days when you went to the bank, if you opened a savings account, they would give you a bank book. Now, don't forget, this is long before there were ATMs. ATMs didn't come out until the late 70s, and yeah, I jumped on the ATM bus as soon as I could, but they weren't everywhere. ATMs were limited to a few locations and to a few banks. Not every bank bought into that, and you couldn't go to an ATM in a 7-Eleven or the supermarket. The ATM was a bank-only thing when they first started. But before they started, if you wanted to go to the bank, you literally had to go to the bank, and you literally had to open an account, and they gave you a little booklet that had your account number on it, and every time you went to the bank, you had to make sure you had your bank book, and then you had to fill out a little form if you were depositing or withdrawing, and you'd bring your form and your bank book to the teller. And then in your little bank book, they would make an entry. They had a machine, they fit the bank book into it, and it would put the date and the nature of the transaction, deposit or withdrawal, and the amount of the transaction. And you would keep track of everything that you did in the bank with your little bank book. If you didn't have your bank book, you couldn't do anything at the bank. I mean, you could cash a check, and this is back in the days when you could just go into any bank and cash a check. You didn't have to have an account there. Nowadays, try cashing a check at any bank, even if you have an account. But back then, you could just go into the bank with a check from anybody, and they'd let you cash it, right there. 
But the bank book was your pass to the bank. That's the only way you could do banking, at least in the form of saving money or withdrawing money from your account. You had to have your bank book. And of course, you had to go to the bank when it was open. You may have heard the phrase banker's hours. Well, that's because banks used to be open only from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. That was banker's hours. Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And they were closed all other times. I remember when our local bank first started having Saturday hours, which was really nice because you could actually get banking done outside of regular business hours. But otherwise, you'd have to run an errand at lunchtime, go to the bank, because that was the only time it was open. It wasn't open before you got to work, and it wasn't open after you left work. You had to fit your banking into their schedule. Bankers' hours were a thing. And if you could get to the bank during bankers' hours, oh well. You'd have to wait to deposit that check or make that withdrawal. Now think about that for a minute. These days, we don't even have to get money. When I was a kid, when I was a young adult, if you wanted to make a purchase, if you needed cash, which you usually needed for most purchases, because they didn't have debit cards, they didn't take credit cards at the supermarket, so you needed cash to make those purchases. So if you needed cash, you had to literally go to the bank and physically withdraw cash. And you always carried cash with you. I still have that habit, even though I don't usually use cash so much these days anymore. But I always have a few dollars in my wallet, just in case. But back when I was younger, you had to have cash for everything. And in order to get cash, you had to go to the bank for it. You couldn't run into the 7-Eleven, use your Apple Wallet or Google Pay or your PayPal. They didn't exist. There wasn't an electronic way to pay for anything. It was cash or a checkbook. Now, some stores would accept a credit card, but a lot of times, especially early on in my life, you would get local credit cards instead of something like MasterCard, which used to be called MasterCharge, or Visa, or Diners Club. Diners Club was a big one way back when. Or American Express, which was the exclusive credit card. Oh, that was the fancy one. But not a lot of people used credit cards. They might have a local tab at the store. You may have actually seen this on an old show like Andy Griffith. Ah, just put it on the tab. And the storekeeper would send you a bill at the end of the month and you'd write him a check or you'd drop cash off at the store. But a lot of the local stores and a lot of the chain department stores like JCPenney, Sears, they would have their own credit card. Our local department store, RJ Mars, had their own credit card. It was only good there, but you could get a credit card there. And you would pay it off every month. You didn't run up big bills. You didn't put $5,000 on a credit card unless you happen to have $5,000 to pay it off at the end of the month. Carrying a balance on your credit card? That was unheard of. There was something else that was big back then. Not so much now, although it's making a comeback. But you could buy things on a layaway plan. Now, the layaway plan involved the store holding on to the item that you purchased and you making monthly installment payments on it. And at the end of you making the payments, they would give you the item. And it could be anything from a shirt to a television set. So, for instance, if you saw a suit that you wanted to wear at the prom, you could use the layaway plan to purchase it. If it was a $90 suit, you could put $10 down on it and pay 20 bucks a month. And after four months, you'd have the suit. You couldn't have it before then, but once you paid for it, they would give it to you. And this is back in the day when you had a local store where you would walk into the store. They had a storeroom in the back, and in the back of that storeroom was the layaway department. And that's where they would keep everybody's layaway items. And yes, they had a filing system and they had a layaway clerk. You'd have a little slip of paper. You'd go in, they'd mark off your payment. And when you paid it off, you'd get your item. You don't really see that anymore, partly because we don't have those kind of stores anymore. But it made it easy to buy something that you wanted. It made you plan ahead because if you needed that suit in three months, you could buy it today and pay for it over the next three months. If you needed it now, you were in a little bit of trouble. So you had to plan ahead. 
Whenever I talk about the way things used to be, I always find myself going back to my favorite things and the things that were very important to me. I've talked about TV before, and TVs were always important to me because I spent so much time watching it. Still do. And I've talked about black and white TVs, and I talked about how our first color TV was like a revelation because we'd never seen anything in color before. But there was a time when black and white was the standard and color was just coming into existence. And if you watch any old shows, like The Fugitive, for instance, if you watch the original Fugitive on any of the old channels, the initial episodes were filmed in black and white. Then they switched to color because color TVs were becoming more popular and more prevalent. But the other thing about those older TVs, and this is not something that everybody thinks about or knows about or remembers, but a lot of those old TVs ran on something called vacuum tubes. Now, these are some of the much older TVs, but to make the TV work, they had all these little vacuum tubes inside that needed to warm up before the TV would start. And when you would turn your TV on, you could hear it start to hum, and it was like the picture would fade in on the picture tube. This is before flat screen. You had that big cathode ray tube that the picture appeared on. But inside the cabinet where the TV was, was about a thousand tubes. Okay, maybe I'm overstating. As a kid, it looked like a thousand. In reality, it was probably ten. But all of those tubes would have to warm up. And I don't know why. I don't know the science behind it. But you wouldn't get instant on. The TV would have to warm up. You'd hear that little hum. And then the picture would fade in on the picture tube. And if your TV stopped working, if you were at all handy, you could take the tubes out of the TV and take them down to the radio shack or the electronics guy in town. There was always an electronics guy in town. Some guy who ran a shop with tons of wires hanging from the ceiling, 700 disassembled radios, 15 partially assembled TVs all scattered throughout his shop. And he'd have a tube tester there. And you could put your tube in this little slot on the machine and it would let you know if the tube was working correctly. And if it was fine, and if it wasn't, he'd have a tube to replace the one that was bad. And that's how you would fix your TV. Nowadays, when your flat screen fails, you throw it out and buy a new one. Back then, you fixed your TV. You were able to, and you had a place to go for parts. I talk about phones a lot, too. I've always been obsessed with phones. Not because I like to talk on the phone, and I'm not even sure why I've been obsessed with phones all of my life. I guess I've always thought it fascinating that I could talk to somebody in Europe just by dialing a number. I could talk to somebody in San Francisco just by picking up a device and punching in their phone number. But I've always liked phones. But the phones in our lives now are very different from when I was growing up. And I've talked in the past about party lines and pay phones and operators and reversing the charges. But one of the most important things about the phone when I was a kid is the power it had over you. It still has power over us today. I mean, we're always on the phone, whether it's watching videos or texting friends or playing some game. But when I was a kid, it had a different power over us. If you were expecting a phone call from somebody, you couldn't leave the house. You literally couldn't leave. You were a prisoner in your own home waiting for that phone call. Whether it was a call for a party or a call from a date or a call from a boss. If somebody said, I'll give you a call on Friday afternoon. If you wanted to make sure you got that call, you couldn't leave the house. You had to sit by the phone. There wasn't any other way to get a hold of you. There was no call forwarding. And even if there was, there wasn't a number you could be reached at, especially if you were going out and playing with your friends, or if you were older, if you were going out to dinner or out to a movie. The only way you could get that call was to be at home. And boy, if you promised to call somebody on Friday afternoon and then you forgot, or you didn't, boy, you would hear about it. I sat around all day waiting for your call. What the hell happened to you? My whole Friday afternoon was shot thanks to you. And they'd be right, because if you owed somebody a call and you didn't make it, Boy, oh boy, were you in trouble. 
The other power that the phone had over you was limiting your mobility. These days with our wireless earbuds, we can walk anywhere, talk all the time. We're hooked up in our car, we can be talking while we're driving. But back in the early days of the phone, you were usually confined to about a three-foot radius around the phone because that's how long the phone cord was. That's why in some of the old houses, you see a telephone stand. The telephone stand would be a little table. It would usually be set right next to a chair or right next to a couch. Because once you picked up that phone, if you were talking, you also wanted a place to sit down because there was no other place you could go and there was no other way to talk to somebody except sitting or standing right next to the phone. And for the longest time, you were stuck by however long your phone cord was. If your phone cord was three feet long, that's how much room you had to maneuver. You've probably seen those curly phone cords. I gave those cords a workout when I was young. I think the most distance you could get on those early phone cords was about four feet if you stretched it really long. But you didn't have a lot of room to play with. It was a little known secret that you could actually call the phone company and have them give you a longer cord. Oh, you couldn't go to Amazon. There was no Amazon. You couldn't go to a store. You had to go to the phone company. And one of the things they introduced, and we had one in our kitchen, was the 15-foot-long curly phone cord. How liberating that was. You could walk around the kitchen. You could make dinner while you were talking on the phone. You could actually walk around and talk on the phone. What an innovation. Now, one of the interesting things about the phones and why you had to call the phone company for a new cord was because in the phones that I grew up with, the phones were hardwired. You know how we have the plugs that you can plug into your computer, that DSL jack that you plug in? When I was a young adult, they made all of the cords on phones have those plugs on the ends. So you could plug it into the base of the phone and you could plug it into the headset and you could replace your cord. But when I was a kid, that wasn't the case. They were hardwired. From the receiver to the base, it was one piece. So you actually had to open up the base and screw in a new cord if you wanted a longer cord. When they started making interchangeable cords, you could actually go to a Radio Shack or the electronics guy and they would have replacement cords. But for the longest time, that wasn't the case. And you were stuck with whatever the phone company gave you. I don't know when that change actually took place from the hardwired cords to the interchangeable cords. But as soon as we could get long phone cords, we put long phone cords on everything we had. It made a huge difference in your life when you could pick up the phone and then walk around, move around, and do other things. These days, we take that for granted. As you know, one of my other loves is cars. And it's interesting to me the way cars have evolved in this country. When I was a kid, American cars were the way to go. Big, gas-guzzling, high-powered, fast cars. We wanted a big V8. We wanted fast acceleration. We wanted doors that went thunk when you slammed them. And back in the 70s and into the 80s, you wanted to drive a Chevy or a Pontiac or a Ford or a Chrysler. You didn't want to drive an import. They were cheap. They weren't as safe. That was the belief. They were made out of tin. When you slammed the door, it went ting instead of thunk. People would hold on to cars forever. You'd have a car for 20 years. It would be a junker. Pieces would be falling off. You'd still be driving it because it was an American car. and It was great and it was fast and it was plenty of room. That's all you wanted from your car. We didn't worry about gas mileage. We didn't worry about dependability. I remember Hondas and Toyotas and VWs. They were foreign cars. Now, we started buying foreign cars because my dad was conscious of gas mileage. He was conscious of dependability. And he knew that American cars would tend to fail and rust out after a while. And he was very impressed with Volkswagens. So we started buying Volkswagens in the 70s. Because in the 70s, that's when gas mileage became an important consideration. It was an important consideration because that's when the gas prices started going up. I've talked about gas being 33 cents a gallon. 
In the 70s, gas prices broke a dollar a gallon for the first time. Ooh. I know these days we're looking at $4 plus a gallon. But my dad, always conscious of the budget, wanted to get something with good gas mileage, and the American cars just didn't do it. The American car manufacturers, they were worried about rugged, solid metal construction. Nowadays, look at how many Toyotas, Hondas, Hyundais, Nissans. Look at how many foreign car companies are out there. What's the most dependable car on the road? Your first reaction is probably Toyota or Honda. If you had told me when I was growing up that people would be favoring Toyotas and Hondas over Chevys and Fords, I would have laughed. I would have said, no way. People look down on imported cars, and especially the Japanese models. Boy, if you were driving a made-in-Japan car back in the 70s or the 80s, people would question your judgment. You wanted to drive American cars. That's what Americans did. We drove American cars. Fast cars, plenty of room, made of solid metal. I think that mentality is still in me somewhere because I still love the muscle cars. I love the Mustang. I love the Camaro. My dream car is a Corvette, even though it makes no practical sense. But the thing that the American car makers could do was make a car look cool. I don't think there's anything cooler on the road than a Corvette. I think they look great, but they are gas guzzlers. And there's a practical side to me that just realizes how silly it would be to get a Corvette even to play around in. But they were cool-looking cars, and they were fast. Not that I want to drive fast. They're just cool, fast cars. I know, I'm 12. Some things you never outgrow. Well, as usual, I have about eight pages of notes, and I got through about two of them. So you can count on the fact that we're going to come back to this topic again somewhere down the road. That's what happens when you've been around for a while. You have a lot of memories, and you have a lot of experiences, and you want to talk about them. And that's what we do here on Storytime, and I thank you for listening. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. As always, I appreciate your support. Thank you for being a part of things. And until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.